Hi, welcome. Welcome to Training with Casey, and I'm your host, Casey Cover. Working and living with animals is my passion. I expect it's pretty important to you also. Let's explore it together. Here, we talk mostly about training, but also about genetics, physiology, philosophy, enrichment, and more. We chase some pretty big rabbits into their burrows. Buckle your seatbelts and let's take a ride. Hey everyone, welcome. Tonight, I'd like to talk about who's smartest. What is intelligence? Why do we care? <laughs> These are all good questions. And you know what? I find them very troublesome questions because I think they inevitably are meaningless. Here's why. I don't care how smart you are at how many things. There's always things you're not smart at. And if we were all the same, if we were all perfect, that would imply that there was one kind of perfection. And that would mean that nobody had unique gifts to contribute. And as it is, we need each other. We need all the different unique gifts everything, even gifts like the ability to survive in different kinds of environments. Um, I have been watching a lot of programs about people that live in wild areas still at the top of mountains or in the taiga or things like that. And the people have you know, maybe the same kind of mental intelligence, but different body intelligences. For example, people that live really high up on, you know, the Andes or the Himalayans are different. They're different. Their bodies have had the intelligence to adapt to their particular conditions. So if I recall correctly, the... Um, hemoglobin of people that live in the Andes is actually larger than the hemoglobin of most people. It needs to be larger so that they can take up more oxygen because there's less oxygen where they live. So much so that when they're going to come down to a lower elevation, at least they used to, cash some of their blood they take some of their blood out of their body and save it so when they had to go back up they put it back in but it would be a hindrance to them at a lower elevation and in the taiga um, some of the people that actually live in the coldest places that are inhabited on earth are able to tolerate their mucous membranes freezing. Everything freezes, their eyelashes, everything else. And I have seen 
people walking around in t-shirts and shorts in weather that was well below freezing. <laughs> so, you know, their, their bodies have shown this intelligence to be able to adapt to really extreme environments. And then when somebody that doesn't have those adaptations wants to go into those areas, they're well advised to get assistance and guidance from people that do have those adaptations. You know, like the people that Sherpa for um, mountain climbers in the, in the Himalayas, you don't want to be guided by people that are susceptible to the same altitude sickness that you are susceptible to. So here I start out talking about body intelligence. We don't normally consider that intelligence. So let's talk about intellectual intelligence and uh, what that means for us, what it means to help us and what it means against us. So I'm going to take myself as an example because I'm a person that just happens to do well at standard tests like they give in schools. So I do well. I do really well. I do really well. I got a perfect score on my verbal SAT, not on my math one, but on my verbal and perfect scores on all that kind of thing for graduate school, like grammar and um, analogies, things like that. But you know what? I'm an absolute idiot when it comes to like keeping things organized. I can organize things, but I can't, I'm not good at maintaining it. Or uh, being able to pull out of a task, you know, like stay balanced. I tend to really get into a task and get lost in it. And if I had my way, I would get up, not even get dressed, still be in my pajamas, grab some tea, start working, and I'd sleep whenever I needed to sleep. And then I'd just keep working until I got the whole project done. Because every time I have to come out of the project, I get lost. It takes me time to get back into it. Like, let's say I stop to get lunch or to answer the telephone or something like that. It takes me effort to remember what I was doing, where I was, all that stuff. And that's been steady. I read that it takes an average of 17 minutes to resume a task every time you're interrupted. Who knew, right? So I also found it very challenging to do anything repetitious. So recording uh, records, right? All, all rep record keeping, journaling, forget it. Uh, writing my memoirs, not too likely. Who knows? It could happen. Um, I keep a lot of official records, but I, I'm not into uh, keeping manuals and journals like some people are. So the long and short of it is you can be, you know, recognized as very, very smart in certain ways, 
and not be smart at all in other ways. So I need to team up with people that don't take responsibility for my weak points, but hold me accountable and help guide me and that kind of thing. Now, I've mentioned different ways that we're intelligent. And um, Gardner came in and said that there are eight kinds of intelligence. So I studied this when I was getting a degree in education. I wanted to learn how humans taught other kinds of humans. And these eight kinds of intelligence that he recognizes are one, musical rhythmic. Now, not only would that be music, but it could be mathematics. A lot of people that are really good with music are also good with mathematics and engineering, which I thought was kind of um, funny. You also have visual spatial. So visual spatial, you know, drawing, illustrations, um, analyzing charts and videos, like really being able to efficiently take information in visually. And by the way, one of the side um, limitations of that kind of intelligence is that you can be very distracted visually. So we always kid around about saying squirrel, boing. But I know a lot of people that are highly visual, if they're really listening to something, they will close their eyes. And some people are offended, but it's actually a compliment. If somebody sits in the front row of your class and closes their eyes, they may not be sleeping. They may be paying really close attention to you. Okay, then there's verbal linguistic. Well, you know what that is. I'm probably kind of high in that one. Then logical mathematical. Hmm, I'm not as high in that one, that's for sure. Um, complex math problems in minutes, even seconds. And some of these people don't even have to do a conscious process to do this. We talk about, uh, or we've, you know, read and, and seen the movie of the Rain Man. And this person didn't study to learn it. It wasn't that he was so smart. He could acquire this volume of information. It just happens. He sees it and it's in his head. So logical mathematical is a really mixed bag and it can be your ability to reason. It can be your ability to manipulate data. It can be your ability to calculate. There's even a language associated with mathematics. And um, a friend who's an engineer said that one of the shaming things about studying mathematics is that the language was so foreign to people that if they just spent, you know, a year 
being in a mathematics culture where they just learned the different terms and got slowly exposed to the different aspects and ideas of mathematics. But then when they started their study in earnest, they would find it much easier because they wouldn't be overwhelmed with a barrage of otherworldly ideas. But I thought that was really interesting. Okay, bodily kinesthetic is number five. So um, in this article but in Business Magazine, they link farmers, mechanics, carpenters, dancers, and athletes. Now, I wonder why they wouldn't put artists there. Artists would be visual, but they'd also have to have really good hand-to-eye coordination for at least some of the kinds of art. And um, you can have, you can have a, a high degree of this and still be, you know, uneven. All right. So I was fairly athletic and I was good at dance in particular, but I have another weird thing about my body. And that is that I have some kind of problem with my eye dominance. So most people will preferentially focus out of either their right or their left eye on a regular basis. And I didn't find out till I was in my 50s, but I don't do that. My eyes are equally opportunist, equally opportunistic competitors. So I'll be seeing predominantly out of one eye and all of a sudden it'll switch and it caused me all kinds of problems. I would knock things off tables, but I would also catch them before they hit the floor. I would catch one ball in midair in a baseball game and people will go, how did you do that? I don't know. And then the next time it would hit me in the forehead. Why'd you do that? I don't know. I have told a story where I, was looking through a microscope and counting all the cells and they suddenly disappeared. It was a one eyepiece microscope and my eye dominance had changed right in mid count. And I had no idea what had happened. I'm sitting there, it's probably pretty comical to watch. I'm looking underneath the microscope. I can see the light still there, the slide's still there. I can see their cells on it. What is going on here? I was so mystified. So how did I find out? Well, in certain circles, this is an important trait. And my nephew, who's an amazing pilot, listened to me talk about some of these problems and turned around very matter-of-factly said um, that I had, well, now I can't remember what he said, but like, eye dominance instability or something like that. And then he solemnly pronounced that I would never be able to be an Apache pilot, an Apache helicopter pilot. What a shame. So you can, you know, intelligence is so specific and it's not specific to even these traits. Like just because you have one kind of bodily kinesthetic intelligence doesn't mean you have all of them. Okay, how about interpersonal? 
So here they're saying people with good abilities to coach, uh, customer service, mental health counseling, better public dealing, but then there's intrapersonal. And these are people that understand themselves and their motivations and so on. So interpersonal is between others and intrapersonal is uh, with yourself. And then finally, number eight in the Gardner scheme is naturalistic. And so that would be biologists, gardeners, animal trainers, woohoo, and geologists. Huh. And I'm wondering, like, who is good at the task that I'm not good at? Like, it doesn't pop out at me with this way of organizing intelligence. Who's really good record keeper? Who would be a good scientist? Is it going to be always the person that's very logical and mathematic or the person that's very musical? See, I kind of suspect that the musical and the mathematics overlap each other a lot. So then let's talk about some things that don't even come up on that. How about um, people that are really good at telling stories. That's so important on so many levels. What about uh, people that are talented in being disciplined and focused? Uh, those two things are intelligence aspects that I've really worked on a lot and I'm not there yet, baby. So there's other ways to rank people. And you could call all of these things intelligences also. Um, I looked at a system and I apologize because I don't know, I don't remember. Okay, news alert, it was a long time ago, okay. And I got sent away to conflict resolution class. And the teacher said, why are you here? Because I kind of seem to get all the answers. And I said, I don't know. But when they sent me off, it was clear that they thought that I really needed to study this, my employers. And in this class, they divided people according to whether they were idea-oriented, systems-oriented, producers or empaths and idea people were people that were very creative and you know originally they, they didn't need you to give them ideas they had plenty of ideas but the downside of these people is that they were fire starters they would go out and start working on ideas and then get distracted and go to a different one and they would leave these unfinished projects all over the place and weren't necessarily at all good at concluding them. And then the systems people tended to make beautiful systems and I can do that. I'm, I'm definitely idea and systems are my two top ones, but um, I'm not at all good at keeping up my systems and 
people that are systematic tend to resent other people working with them because they don't keep the systems up as well as they want them to. Now, what evidence do I have for you that I'm a systems person? I don't know. Do you think the fact that I spontaneously said Sinalia training systems is any evidence? So the type of person, number four, is producers. And producers um, like to get the job done, get credit for it, get kind of like creature comforts, like um, bonuses, um, parking spaces, pins that say that they did well. And then the last group was a smallest group, and that was empaths. And um, these are people that kind of keep the whole group together and watchdog the whole thing. And they're very important, but they're very important for the social aspect of everybody working together rather than the actual work production aspect. So each one of these intelligences had liabilities associated with it. So the idea people would um, just start things, not finishing, not finish them, have too many things there that would just be chaotic for everyone else. The systems people were slow to get started because they wanted to understand everything before they actually started work. They resented if somebody else didn't uh, like their system and they tend to bottleneck because they, until they're ready to, you know, until they've done all their homework, they are not going to just jump out and start working. And your producers are the opposite. By the way, the producers were estimated to be probably maybe as much as 90% of the population. And they didn't care whose idea it was or anything else. They just wanted to go out get the ground running, get it done, get credit for it, and get out of there. And some of the problems with the producers is that um, quality control. And yeah, I would say quality control is one of the big ones. And also um, how they interacted, maybe more competitive. And then the empaths, they can get... Um, they can get wonderful results in getting people to work together, but they also can get paralyzed. They can get overwhelmed with emotion or conflict or something like that. So before we look at how we develop intelligence, let's take a little bit more of a look at how animals manifest intelligence. And boy, is this one of my favorite subjects. For so long, humans have made pronouncements about the limitations on animal intelligence based on nothing. And I really mean nothing. It's like, because the animal didn't present a paper at a conference, the assumption was, they couldn't think on any level at all, really. So, you know, we were told animals had no sense of present, past, future. 
uh, no values, no sense of fairness. Yeah, it just goes on and on and on, but nobody tested. It was just kind of assumed that because it wasn't waving in our faces, that it just didn't exist. And yet, if you watch a mother with a baby, there's no baby that shows amazing ability right out of the womb. And mothers are the most loving, patient beings. And they go and talk to their babies and talk to their babies and talk to their babies. And how long is it before the babies say anything meaningful back? Months and months and months. Scientists might discourage mothers from continuing this fruitless endeavor, but the mothers wouldn't listen. And they're right not to listen because eventually those babies talk, they talk fluently, they're capable of so much. Hmm, what if we taught animals like parents teach children? What if we systematically taught all animals language, concepts, you know, anything that we think is important and actually observe and assess and see whether they have this capability. Because lo and behold, when we finally started to do that, so um, when I started doing two-way intelligence work and so forth, oh my gosh, I just got told by so-called scientists after scientists after scientists that um, animals weren't capable of conscious thought. They weren't capable of any kind of thought, da-da-da-da-da. And again, nobody had done the research. And if you, you know, tried to do anything about the research, you were just swimming upstream to such an incredible degree. So nonetheless, animal intelligence definitely occurs. And here are some examples. So if you said, what evidence do humans produce that they're oh so smart? Well, technology might be a great one to look at. Of course, don't look too closely because if you look at the fact that we're wiping ourselves off of the face of the earth with our lack of intelligence about how we manage the environment, we don't look so smart anymore, regardless of what height a skyscraper we can build. But if we go up against a chimpanzee, the chimpanzee is incredibly better at short-term memory. Short-term memory, why would that be important? Well, if you have to quickly learn what things are edible, where the water is, how to avoid a snake, all these things that you you know, learn from your parents or the other people in your group. And you may not get a chance to see it again very often. I remember a time that my father and my sisters and I were all hiking out together in the desert. And all of a sudden, 
my dad told my sister, stop. And he shot a snake right out from under her foot. And he then butchered the snake and we fried it for dinner. Well, that never happened again. We never happened to be in a situation where uh, we never even saw another snake in all the camping and hiking and everything else that we did. So that was a one-off opportunity. So could I do it again? Yeah, I, I think I could because um, I butchered a lot of other things, including my hairdo every once in a while. But so I have a general knowledge, but still that's, a you know, if it's a survival thing, you really want to have a good memory if you need to remember. And um, memory, it's, there's evidence that there's a cellular aspect to memory, like an inherited aspect. And now research is being done to learn more about this because some people that depend on, you know, they're um, living off the actual, you know, wild environment and they need to find water. And there could be places where they have to go to get water when, they, when there are droughts that they have never been to, that nobody they know has ever been to, and yet they can find that water. I remember when I was a kid, my dad had a lot of survival training before he went to Vietnam to fight. And he shared a lot of that with us. So there's a lot of basic rules like um, dig between sand dunes, dig after the first sand dune in the valley of it if you want to look for water. That's one of the things he was told. And, you know, there's other ways to kind of produce water from condensation at night. So there's all these skills that we can learn. But if you've exhausted all those things, there seem to be still other assets related to memory that there's no logical way that we could access unless it were somehow inherited. Or maybe you're guided, right? Maybe intuition is you being in contact with your um, ancestors. We'll leave that one where it is right now. Okay, so I mentioned chimps and their short-term memory. Crows recognize faces like crazy. They'll remember somebody years after um, they've seen someone, but crows are not the only bird like that. I had some pigeons and I made a box for them to nest in that hung outside my second story window. And then I went to the university to live and I took my box of pigeons and hung it outside that second story window. And the general wisdom about moving pigeons is you keep them kind of with a wire porch. So you put a little aviary around their box for a couple of weeks so they can go out and you know, get the gist of their environment. 
So I did that. And after about two weeks, I took the wire down and they were fine. You know, they had no problem at all orienting and getting back to their house and so on. And then I moved to a third place. And it was, you know, 35 miles away. And I took my pigeons again and set them up. And I would commute back and forth to the university still. But I wasn't living on campus at the university any longer. And you know what? Half the time when I went to the university, the pigeons would be there hanging out. Just because I left didn't mean they had to leave. They knew exactly where they were and they would beat me back home. But they were also going back to visit the first house. And the neighbors would see them and they would, you know, check with me. Oh, I was concerned. I saw your pigeons. Nope, everything's fine. They're also at home. And in tests, pigeons could discriminate between pictures of, for example, broccoli and treats. And they were much, much better at discerning people bobbing in the water than humans were. And they have other things that they're really good at. Pigeons have ferromagnetite in their brain cells. And that helps them to orient to the Earth's magnetic field lines. And it's thought that this might be one of the ways that they're able to navigate long distances and race home, hence racing pigeons. And I think it's kind of interesting and amusing that intelligence has and still is assigned to brain size. And at one point, it was thought that the brain was, yeah, the size of your brain was the biggest thing. In fact, I think a lot of people are embarrassed by the fact that Neanderthals had bigger brains on average than Homo sapiens did. However, the brain of Einstein was preserved and he actually had a very small brain. Who'd predict that? And then when they found some birds are so intelligent, and I'll bet you anything that it's all birds. Yeah, they may not show the intelligence and so on, but I'll bet you they're all way more intelligent than we imagine. But people were just, you know, flustered. Well, birds can't be this smart because their brains are the size of a walnut. Well, then they came up with a rationale. Oh, it's a walnut-sized brain, but the neurons are packed a certain way. And yet, one way of explaining the brain is that your mind is non-local, that your brain itself is not the source of your intelligence, but rather your dashboard through which your intelligence manifest in this environment. So if you get brain damage, it will compromise your ability to show your intelligence, but it doesn't really change your intelligence. And I had a really interesting opportunity to see that in action. Some of you of a certain age 
or that like history might remember James Brady, who was the press secretary for Reagan. And when somebody attempted to assassinate Reagan, they shot James Brady instead or in addition. And he went through a lengthy convalescence. Well, the injury really affected his ability to speak. And I was at an event where he was the guest of honor. And at a certain point, I needed to take a break because my monkey, who I was there with, was exhausted. And she was supposed to get a break, but there was no place to take a break. But this event had these backdrops, like a cutout of the city skyline. And I ducked behind those. And in the quiet dark, we started to just meditate and rest a little bit. And imagine my surprise when all of a sudden, here comes a person in a wheelchair. And as I'm looking up in shock, he looks at me in shock. And I whispered, I won't tell if you won't. And he shakes his head in assent. And I ended up with this amazing opportunity to talk to Mr. James Brady for about 45 minutes. And what I saw, because, you know, when you work with nonverbal animals that are very intelligent, you start to see ways that they communicate without words. So one of these is when somebody is thinking, many times their head will tip back. So their chin will kind of tip up and they'll lean back a little bit. Many times their eyes will flit from side to side. Many times they'll get a soft, unfocused gaze. So these are all signs. So when I said something to Mr. Brady and he didn't answer immediately, but I'm seeing these signs, I recognize that he is processing. He's considering what I said and considering what he wants to say or do about it. Now, in this case, because of this injury, it took him longer than it would normally take somebody. Oh my gosh, that was so telling. It was so telling because here's this person that was so fluent, so fluent, that he rose above many, many people because of his ability to speak and formulate ideas and so on. And this crazy person that shot him robbed him of that fluency that he had. But he didn't rob him of his intelligence. And what came out in a kind of laborious conversation was that laborious for um, Mr. Brady, not for me, was that 
he still had the same quality of thought that he always had, but he wasn't able to match words to thought as quickly as he had. He wasn't able to get the nuances of expression out there. So if he said something, it wasn't necessarily accompanied with the little sly glance or the semi-smile or all those nuance signals we give to help others interpret our intent as we speak. That informed me for the rest of my career because if it could be that way and be frustrating and such a challenge for Mr. Brady, and it wasn't just that he didn't perform in the same way he had, but it was also the fact, he said, that people didn't treat him the same way because they assumed because he wasn't as fluent as he had been, that he wasn't as intelligent as he had been. This is exactly the situation that animals are in. So rather than jump to conclusions about animal intelligence or about the intelligence of somebody that has a brain injury, or anything like that, I believe we need to take a page from the book of mothers and just keep working to, uh, to be allies with people that uh, don't have speech and with animals that don't have speech and systematically teach and empower and patiently allow them space in which to be heard and seen and listened to. Um, since then, I have taken the opportunity to discuss these issues with many, many people with traumatic brain injuries. And without fail, one of the biggest frustrations in their lives are that other people jump to the conclusion on what their intelligence and their abilities are. And also, and boy, it's so easy to be guilty of this one, other people finish their sentences. So when you are fluent, there's a speed of normal communication. And if somebody doesn't match that speed, it can be very uncomfortable. It can be difficult to maintain focus on what they're saying. And I believe that a lot of times it's an honest effort to be engaged and to show engagement when we go ahead and finish what somebody else is trying to say. But in doing that, in showing that we're following and we're really putting thought into what they're saying and we understand where they're going, if we take it in a different direction, if we take the conversation in a slightly different tack than the person intended, 
Then they have to do extra work to back us up and to redirect the conversation to what they were trying to say. And it's so challenging just to talk that they really don't want you to fill in the spaces. Please just give us some time. Wow, I really can understand that. But I don't think there's anybody worse than me at filling in the spaces. And I noticed that when I have podcast guests too, because in performance, you know, when you're giving shows or presentations, dead space is dead. You don't want to leave silence in a broadcast or before an audience. And so you develop a sense of timing when, yeah, when the conversation should start again. And sometimes people need time to think or whatever. And if they don't come through in a certain amount of time, I'll start to talk again. And inevitably, I talk right over the person. And I think it's partially made more of a problem when you're not sitting with one another because there's a delay as the signal goes, you know, over the internet or through the wires, whatever. But however it happens, I am so conditioned to keep the conversation going. It's really hard for me to just wait for somebody. And it's not like they're taking too long or anything else, but it's just longer than I'm conditioned to allow it to go. So those who are not as um, fluent in speech, and that would be, you know, all animals except parrots. African gray parrots are probably better than we are in certain ways. But anyway, they want time. They don't want us to walk over them. Now I want to talk about one other aspect of intelligence. Man, if you start looking into this, it's going to change you on in so many ways. That's the intelligence of one-celled organisms. You can just search it these days on YouTube. You can find one-celled organisms learning, one-celled organisms correcting their behavior, one-celled organisms changing their minds, and a one fascinating story I heard a long time ago. Okay, I'll tell you two of them. One was about amoebas. And if you look at an amoeba in a slide with some water in it, on it, and then they put a little cover over that water to keep it from evaporating so your little amoebas don't die. And because of the rotation of the earth, there's a circulation of that water under the cover and I believe it's in counterclockwise motion. But anyway, it doesn't matter. It goes all the time one way or the other. And amoebas, these particular amoebas, like to eat these algae spores, which were in these little silicone balls. And they would roll on the slide. And these amoebas would go out after these spores and the spores would get away from them. But you know what they did is they didn't go chasing around and around 
in a counterclockwise direction. Instead, they stayed where they were and they threw a pseudopod out across the stream of the fluid motion and intercepted the algae spores. Mind is blown. But here's another one that just blew my mind. And this was, um, I learned about this in the early 80s, both of these. So in this one, I listened to a talk, and again, I apologize, I don't remember the gentleman's name, but he was a graduate student, I believe from Yale, and he was studying tunicates, and tunicates are taxonomically placed between sponges, uh, sponges and something else, but anyway, you get the idea, they grow out on you know, surfaces of rocks and things like that. And they're colony animals. And they don't really seem to have much behavior. And a strange thing about them is the various kinds of tunicates would compete for territory. And they would be able to fight off the other tunicates based on how they met. Okay, so you might have, let's say you had three kinds, A, B, and C. Maybe A would be dominant over B if they met head-to-head. -head. But maybe B would be dominant over A if they met head-to-tail. And maybe C would be dominant over both of them if they met side-to-side. -side. So here's the amazing thing. If the tunicates are in the water and the molecules are circulating in the water that are evidence of other tunicates approaching, the tunicates could recognize what kind of tunicate was on its way and they would change the orientation of their growth so that they would intersect with the approaching tunicates to their best advantage. Yeah. Another one that I saw that was amazing was white blood cells going uh, after bacteria. And I always kind of thought this was you know, la, 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 where the white blood cells are just ambling through the capillaries and all of a sudden they run into a bad guy and they grab him and eat him. And it's just like a numbers game, you know, almost like they're filters. And when the thing goes by them, they grab it. And if it doesn't go by them, they don't grab it. And it is not necessarily like that at all. They have videos where you can see the white blood cell pursuing the bacteria. They are hunters. And did you know that um, the cells have to go through a training process and they have to learn to recognize yourself from external things that are threatening you. And if the immune cells do not learn this, 
they are required to self-destruct. So now's a good time to say, yeah, but so why is there autoimmune disease? Because obviously this immune process goes wrong sometimes. It's like, ah, that's where we come in because they're doing this hard work for us, but we have to set them up with environments that make it possible for them to do a good job. If we don't get enough sleep, if we don't get the right nutrition, if we don't manage our stress, we hamper their ability to function, okay? I've had the same problem on every job I've ever worked. So to recap, there's every different kind of intelligence. Gardner gives us eight. We could easily come up with hundreds more. Every kind of animal has much more intelligence than we have any idea of. And that intelligence is not limited by size. Things that we don't expect animals, you know, behavior that seems very advanced is there in one-celled organisms. In fact, Candace Pert did amazing research and demonstrated that even plankton have receptor sites for the molecules of emotion. She wrote a book called The Molecules of Emotion. And there's an audio version of it, which is only three hours long. What a disappointment because her book is outstanding. And I would love to get it on audio so I could listen to it again. But I don't want to hear just the three hour version. Um, this book, you know, I, I worked in this field. And so I know the lingo and all that and the basic ideas. And still, I could only read about 20 minutes at a time. It's all complex, but it's so interesting because she takes you through answering one question and then that raises the next question. And then they answer, you know, they do a study to answer that one. And that raises another question. They do the next study. Cool, suspenseful. And the work was um, nominated for a Nobel Prize. That's another story. I'll let you find out about that one yourself. Okay, so on a practical basis, what do we do with this? What do we do with this blossoming realization that animals are, A, much more intelligent than we ever gave them credit for, but B, can develop that intelligence with our support to an amazing level. Oh, well, I didn't really cover that yet, did I? So I'll just briefly um, tell that, for example, my horse, Sarah, has been tested on over 500 concepts. And it's really easy test to do. Um, you just go out and you know, ask her a question to identify something, to say, uh, tell us something about it. Is this a fruit or other? So that shows you whether or not she understands that concept. With the cows, we asked them, do you want food or a date with a bull? And if they wanted food, they had to go to the food station before we would go there. 
or if they wanted the bull, they had to go to the gate to the bull. So each time the cow proved that they knew what they chose. If the cow had chosen the bull and went over to the food station, we would have been redesigning the research. So Sarah knows well over 500 things. So what does she know? The names of various foods, the names of various flowers, um, concepts like lights and engines being on or off, touch being on or off, whether something's food or a tool, if a tool is used on the feet or the body, um, body parts, names of individuals, concepts like unknown people and known people. So friends and strangers is what we called it. And she can do all this. And it's not just my big idea. I actually went through and tested her on these things. But at the stable where she used to be at, the owner of the stable was quickly convinced that Sarah knew what she was talking about. If you asked Sarah if she wanted a blanket and she said yes, she would stand steady and help you get the blanket on her. If um, she didn't want a blanket, if she said no, she would try to sidle away when you put the blanket on. If you set her loose and said, please stay right here, she would do that. If you asked her to please walk yourself out to the pasture, she would do that. So there was all this evidence that this horse really understands these things on a general level where she can converse with them with other people. So one time I'd come in and, and I asked her if she wanted to go out at night and she normally wanted to sleep outside no matter who it was, you know, no matter what the weather was, she wanted to be out with the other horses. But this night she said, no, she wanted to stay in. So I called, got permission, no problem. So when the barn manager came in, I said, um, yeah, the owner said it's okay, but Sarah and the barn manager goes, oh, I know. I asked Sarah if she wanted to go out tonight and she didn't want to go and I didn't believe her. So I asked her again and she looks at me like, didn't you just ask me that? And she said again, she didn't want to go out. And I asked her if she wanted hay and that was a definite yes which is exactly, I didn't ask about the hay, but I didn't believe Sarah didn't want to go out either. And so I asked her a second way. So just for future reference, when I say we ask a second way, if we're going to ask, um, do you want to go out? Yes or no. Then to double check that answer, we might want, we might say either, do you want to stay inside? Yes or no. So we're asking the opposite question with the same choice assignment, or we might say, do you want to go outside? No or yes. So then the animal has to be listening and processing what you say in order to have a congruent answer. And that just wasn't a problem. I hope that what this guides us to do, this dawning recognition that all these animals are more complex. They're doing these functional MRIs and they're showing all this brain activity that's very similar to ours when we're thinking. We're showing that animals 
can learn all these concepts, but they also can learn so much language. So I get complaints all the time that people are watching the training sessions. It doesn't look like a training session. No, it looks like a teaching session. Like it looks when I'm explaining something to a young person and I just explain it. And the young person listens, processes, and applies. That's exactly what the animals do. We get virtually errorless learning, but it's not based on command, execute, command, execute. It's based on explain and then give the animal a chance to try it. Explain a little bit more. Give the animal a chance to try it. This goes on while you're teaching the concept. And later on, you do the proofing where you get make sure that you have the reliability that you need. So we can develop the animal's um, intelligence by teaching them skills and so on. And we can develop their fluency with language. We can develop their understanding of concepts. We can develop the way they relate these ideas. Um, and I talk about that all the time. Left versus right, different body parts. Do you have a left ear? Do you have a right ear? Do you have a left eye? Do you have a left leg? Et cetera, et cetera. So the concept of left versus right and how that is relevant to them in navigating the world. But we're also need to take into account gardeners' ideas about different types of intelligence amongst animals too. So when I was at National Zoo, we had a whole list of things that all the animals had to do. But you know what? They didn't all like to do them, especially the vet behaviors. I think that was the major one that all the animals wanted to avoid, but some animals were very good at them. What we would do, what I would do, is allow the animals to do any behavior they wanted. You don't wanna learn that one? Okay, let's learn this one. A lot of the animals that were worst at standing and cooperating with the vets were the best at the um, athletic stuff, you know, speed runs and spirals and flips and jumping out of the water, all that stuff. And if you let them just do that and excel at it and get recognition, they would build up their confidence. And then they would look at these other animals that were just sitting there and getting paid. And all they had to do was sit there and maybe every once in a while you'd stick a needle in them, but what, is that so much? And then these acrobats came back and they're kind of like demanding their opportunity. Well, I can do that too. So quickly, everybody learned everything and it was self-driven. It wasn't us going, you better do this or else. It was just letting them see that, look, it's not that big a deal. It's not hard. You can do this. And even the things that people would assume were the scariest, like getting into the squeeze cages and being squeezed all the way down, the animals love that. They loved it. And it got to be the kind of thing where they would like 
want that opportunity. They want to go into the squeeze cage and get pressed all the way down. It can be very relaxing, apparently. Okay. So with intelligence, there's so much more than we assume. I suspect it's not anywhere near as linked to body um, features as people think it is. I personally suspect just from studying all this that intelligence is non-local, that it's kind of broadcast to us in the same way that uh, you watch TV and you see this, the show on the TV, but the show doesn't live in the TV and the TV didn't produce the show. If you break the TV open, you can't release the actors. The TV is just the means by which the shows are transmitted, by which they're evidenced. It's not where they reside. And there's evidence that we have holographic intelligence that isn't local to our brains. So newsflash scientists, it doesn't matter the size of the bird's brain or whether or not the neurons are packed this way or that way. It may just be that as long as they've got a brain that allows them to show their intelligence in our environment, they're good to go. And that may be much, much simpler. And here's another piece of evidence for that. Have you heard that we're only using 10% of our own brains? So why do we have these huge brains if we don't even use them? That doesn't seem very intelligent of us. Maybe a walnut-sized brain is all that we really need. Interesting. Ooh, and another piece of evidence for that is, do you guys remember the story of the guy that was a genius? And it turns out that he'd had um, hydrocephaly and only had 10% of his brain still functioning. And he literally functioned as a genius. Ooh, and I just heard another one like, oh, this was on a discussion of intelligence by Rupert Sheldrake and two other scientists who also argued about whether intelligence is non-local and so on. And they talked about this researcher was doing research on damage from um, encephalopathy or hydroencephalopathy, where this is where you have water pressure build up or fluid pressure build up in somebody's head and it damages the brain. And um, this gentleman was a graduate student and doing very well. And it turns out he had significant damage to his brain. And yet he functioned at the same level as all the other grad students. Interesting, isn't it? So let's get out there and let's develop that intelligence. And I would love to see what you're doing and comment let me know, you know, what have you done? What have you seen? And where do you stand on these things? And if you do stand any place on them, have you tested it? Have you gone out and taught animals, you know, about things like you would teach a person?
I, I love this subject. Thank you so much for spending time with me. And thank you for um, the people subscribing and the comments. We're getting more and more comments. It's so interesting. So many great trainers out there, dedicated pet owners, so many interesting observations, questions, and projects. Thank you so much. Thank you for your likes and your subscribes and your shares. It really helps to get the word out. Thank you. Good night. Hi, thanks for being here. I really appreciate you coming here and listening. And please become part of the conversation. I love to hear your comments. And I'd love for you to tell me how this affects you, if it makes you angry, if it makes you interested, whatever. And as always, I appreciate it so much when you help us get the word out. I hope you'll come back and I'll see you next time.